When my oldest daughter was about two years old, her most prized possession was her pacifier. She took it with her wherever she went. If it fell out of her mouth at night when she was sleeping, she'd wake up and there'd be a lot of wailing and screaming, mostly from me since she'd wake me up too. And then one day we were at my parents' church and this, this kid about a year older than she was came up and just out of the blue pushed her down on the ground. So she pulled out her pacifier, held it up to him as if he were some kind of angry god she had to appease. She had this look on her face that said, here, take it, it's my most prized possession, just don't hurt me. And at that point his parents intervened and disciplined him, though not nearly enough in my opinion. <laughs> now to my daughter, she was surrendering the most valuable thing she had, her binky. So this morning, I want to start the sermon by asking you this question. What is your binky? We all have one, don't we? This fall, we're talking about how when we surrender our lives to Jesus, life gets bigger, deeper, richer, better. So what would be the hardest thing for you to surrender to God right now? Is it your money, your time, your career plans? Is it your marriage? And by that, I don't mean surrender your spouse. I mean, don't go think of that. I mean, surrender the marriage. Say to God, I want to do it your way. I want to stop trying to control my spouse and serve my spouse. Lord, show me how to do that. Maybe you t try to control a lot of people and maybe you find yourself angry a lot that other people just won't do what you want them to do. One of the hardest things for me to surrender to God is my image. What, what other people think of me. You know, would I be willing to look like a fool for Jesus? I don't know. Some of you might think, oh, don't worry, Dudley, you do that just fine. That's, you're very good at that. For some of you, maybe it's not a question of surrendering something. Maybe it feels like something is being taken from you, like your stock portfolio, for instance. As you watch the financial news, maybe it doesn't feel like you're surrendering your money as much as it feels like you're losing it. What's your binky? I got a binky, you got a binky, all God's children got binkies, Right? Whatever it is, do you trust? Do you trust that if you surrender it to God, that he is good and he will give you good things? Maybe not the things you think you want, but good things all the same. Better things maybe, like peace and joy, intimacy with God, community, significance, adventure, things that can't be taken away no matter what the stock market does. And wouldn't that be nice? And that's what's at the heart of the story that we read today. And at first, you know, this story is a brutal story, isn't it? I mean, at first, God does not come off looking very good, does he? I mean, what kind of a God would say to Abraham, I want you to kill your son. I want you to sacrifice Isaac. Now, the background of this story, if you remember from last week, is God says to Abraham, I'm going to make your descendants into a great nation. But 25 years go by and Abraham still doesn't have a kid. So his wife, Sarah, tells him to sleep with the maid and have a kid through her. And Abraham says, okay, dear. <clears throat> it was a bad thing to do. Then his wife gets jealous of the maid and along with her son, kicks both of them out. The son's name is Ishmael, kicks both of them out. Then about a year later, Abraham and his wife, Sarah, have their own child named Isaac. And you sort of want the story to end there, right? It's kind of a happy ending, sort of. But no, the story just keeps marching right into Genesis 22. Where God says to Abraham, take your son, cut him up into little pieces, and burn him on an altar. Whoa! Like, where does that come from? What kind of God is this? 
And this is a story non-Christians point to a lot and say, look how awful your God is. You want me to believe in that God? But you see, that misses the whole point of the story. The whole point of the story is that God stops Abraham from doing it, provides a ram as a substitute instead. The point of this story is that God is good and loving, and it's one of the first places in the Bible we realize that he is. But to really understand it, to really understand why it shows that God is loving, what you really need to do is understand Abraham's culture. Because you see, this request from God would not have surprised Abraham at all. Because every other religion at the time did practice child sacrifice. That's just what you did. Every other God in every other religion at the time would make Abraham kill his son. That's what they did. But the point of this story is that the God of Abraham is different than all of those other gods. In this story, God is saying, Abraham, I know you think I'm cruel. I know you think I'm mean. I know you think I'm like all of those other gods, but I'm not, Abraham. I'm different. In fact, throughout the whole Bible, God says, I hate child sacrifice. says it over and over. He never intended Abraham to do this in the first place. The point of this story is that unlike every other god, he is a god of love. And he does not require folks to sacrifice something just to earn his love. He loves them unconditionally. And he proves that by coming himself in the person of Jesus, dying to take the penalty for our sins because he'd rather die than lose us. <clears throat> and you can see that foreshadowed in how this story ends, which clearly foreshadows Jesus. Let me just give you a couple of ways it does. God provides Abraham with a ram as a substitute for Isaac. <clears throat> Jesus is called the Lamb of God who is a substitute for us and takes punishment for our sins. The ram is caught in a thicket of thorns. Jesus wears a crown of thorns. Isaac carries the wood on his back. Jesus carries the cross on his back. The ram is sacrificed on Mount Moriah, which is, later becomes Jerusalem, which is where Jesus is crucified. Okay, this is not English major hard. Right? It clearly foreshadows Jesus. And what God is saying to Abraham is, you do not have to sacrifice to earn my love. You do not have to achieve to be accepted by me. You don't have to perform. I love you unconditionally, and I will sacrifice myself to prove it. <clears throat> and that's what Abraham has faith in. You know, in this story, Abraham says to his servants, Isaac and I will go worship on the mountain, then we will come back. We. That is, Abraham somehow knows he's not going to ultimately lose Isaac. That in spite of all the circumstances, in spite of what everything says, God is good and will give him good things. Maybe he won't have to go through with it. Maybe God will raise Isaac from the dead. Abraham has faith that in spite of what circumstances look like, God is good and somehow, some way, someday, God will give him good things. And you see, what that means is that we can surrender ourselves to God. Because we are not surrendering ourselves into the hands of a God who doesn't care. We surrender ourselves into the hands of a God who loves us more than we can even imagine. <clears throat> this year, our youngest child, Lucy, started full-day kindergarten. So for the first time in nine years, my wife has a little bit of free time because she doesn't have kids at home the whole time. Well, Lucy was explaining all of this to her Sunday school teacher and, a few weeks ago, and, and the, the teacher said, wow, what's your mom going to do with all of that free time? And Lucy said, she's going to throw all our toys away. <clears throat> Where does that come from, right? Like evil mom, right? Scheming to throw away the toys. She lives to throw away the toys, right? That is so often how we view God, isn't it? You know, if I surrender my time or my money or whatever, my career, well, he's going to take away all my toys and I'm going to be miserable. 
No. God is good. And he wants to bless us. But in order to do that, we need to let go of those things we're hanging on to so tightly that we think are going to make us happy, but that don't. Money, how's that working for you these days? Right? It doesn't make us happy. Nothing but God makes us happy. And you see, if we go through life like this, hanging on to all of our binkies, all of our Isaacs, whatever they are, God can't bless us. Our fists are closed. We can't receive his blessing. But if we let go and surrender those things, surrender, not sacrifice, there's a difference. Sacrifice is when we give something up. Surrender is when we give something to God. If we let go, our hands are open to receive God's blessings. But that would be the problem, wouldn't it? We don't like to let go. We don't like to surrender. Have you ever had a time when you feel God asking you to surrender something, but you kind of try to avoid it? Or you feel a nudge that God is asking you to surrender, you know, like maybe your money, but you kind of push that out of your head. Or, or maybe you're here in church and you experience what a friend of mine calls the ministry of the ribcage, which is when the pastor says something your spouse thinks is very appropriate for you and you get one of these. Right? Ever happened? Right? But you kind of put that out of your mind. When it comes to surrendering our Isaacs, we are very clever at figuring out ways not to do it. Like the actor W.C. Fields, when a friend found him reading the Bible and said, what are you doing? And Fields said, I'm looking for loopholes. <laughs> That's us, right? Looking for loopholes. What's your Isaac? What is your Isaac? What are you hanging on to so tightly that God can't give you his blessings? A while back, I was counseling a couple on the verge of divorce because he wanted to quit his job to become a pilot. And she didn't want him to do that because she thought it was financially risky. His Isaac was adventure and career. Her Isaac was control and security. So I told him that as hard as it might be, he was going to have to surrender some stuff, stop trying to control his wife, and, and help her feel more secure and, and serve her so she feels more secure. I told her as hard as it's going to be, you got to let your husband have some adventure. Well, the only thing that they agreed on was that they didn't like what I was saying, so they stopped coming to see me. <laughs> It's a counseling technique I've developed. Get the couple to hate me, and it bonds them in a certain way. Six months later, he came to my office. I thought for sure to tell me they were divorced. But he had a different story. He said that things kept getting worse and worse until finally one day he said, Lord, I don't want to do this. I can't do this. I'm going to do my marriage your way, not mine anymore. Show me what to do, and I'll do it. I give it up. Well, a few weeks later, he got laid off. And then the only job that he could find at the time was at an airport, which allowed him to learn more about being a pilot. In the meantime, he surrendered some of his Isaacs to make his wife feel more secure. He sold one of their cars to save money. He spent more time with her instead of at work or out with his buddies. He even made what for him was the ultimate sacrifice. He quit golfing to save money, which to me sounds like liberation, but it was a sacrifice to him. <clears throat> And they started to pray together. Well, all of that made her feel more secure, feel like she could trust him. So a couple of months into that, she came to him and said, you know what, I've changed my mind. And I'd like to see you go to flight school. But do it quickly and then go get a good job as a pilot and I still don't want you to golf. <laughs> well, he told me the best part was he felt like he'd seen an actual real miracle because he didn't think their marriage had a chance. He said, you know what, before this, my faith was always this kind of Christmas, Easter kind of deal. It wasn't really very real to me. But now I know that God is real because I've seen a miracle and I can feel him. 
And, and, and my wife and I are praying together. We're going to church. And he said, you know, I even listen to your sermons and I, and I almost never fall asleep. <laughs> they both surrendered some of their Isaacs. And life got bigger, richer, deeper, better. But not in the way they would have expected. You know, if you had told her her biggest joy was going to be seeing her husband as a pilot, she would have told you you were crazy. If you told him his biggest joy was going to be giving up some stuff he liked to do to serve his wife and make her feel loved, he would have laughed. You see, when we surrender ourselves to God, things don't always go the way we think they should. They go better, even if it's harder. And often it is harder when we surrender to God. Often it is harder, but bigger, deeper, richer, better. So practically speaking, how do we do this? How do we surrender our Isaacs? Well, I think it's sort of like a trapeze artist. <clears throat> Henri Nouwen, the writer Henri Nouwen, talks about how there are two roles in trapeze, the flyer and the catcher. And the real star isn't the flyer, it's the catcher, because he's got to be in the right place at the right time. And the most important piece of equipment the, the catcher has is talcum powder. Because if you're a flyer, you don't want a catcher with sweaty hands, right? Not a good thing. Well, God is the catcher. We are the flyers. And the flyers' role is to do four things. And it's the same four things we do to surrender our Isaacs. And the first is let go. Flyer has to let go of the trapeze. Just like we have to let go of our Isaacs. And for me, this is a heart thing. This is getting to the place in our heart where we can honestly say to God, Lord, take it. I surrender it. I give it to you. Show me what you want to do. Or if we can't say that and mean it, at least pray, Lord, help me at least want to want to surrender this to you. <clears throat> a woman in this church emailed me a while back about how for a long time her greatest worry was that her adult children did not know Jesus. One night she was reading in the Bible where God says, with tender affection, I shall bring you home. And she thought, Lord, is that a message for me about my kids? Well, she kept reading a few verses later. It said, your children will all be instructed by the Lord. So she, she said she felt that God was talking to her. So the next day she was sharing some of this with some Christian coworkers who reminded her that they had been praying for her kids and her grandkids for years. Well, all of that somehow combined. To, for, so for her, she felt like God was saying to her, don't worry about your kids. I've got them. I'm going to take care of them. And I'll bring them back to me. So she released them to God. And she said, you know what? I maybe won't see it until, you know, even, you know, it may not happen before I die. But I know that they are in God's hands. I can let him handle it. And I have faith that I'll see them in heaven one day. She released. That's the first step, release. Second step of surrender is to reach. The flyer has to reach out for the catcher. And I think these are the tangible, practical things that we actually do in order to surrender. It's when we actually do give money to God's work or do say to our spouse, I'm sorry, or when we stop bullying people to get what we want. Release, reach. The third step is to wait. The flyer has to wait for a minute for the catcher to catch him. In the story I told you about the couple and their marriage, after he sacrificed some things, he had to wait to see how his wife was going to respond. You know what? And in our culture that wants McHappiness McNow, I think the waiting, I think this is the hardest part for us is waiting. There's a story the great pianist Rachmaninoff tells about a time when he was giving a piano recital and he was playing a Beethoven sonata that, that had several very long rests in the middle of it. And during one of those long rests, a lady leaned forward, patted him on the shoulder and said in a very nice voice, oh honey, why don't you play us something that you know? <laughs> the waiting is so hard because when we wait, 
Some of you are just getting that. When we wait, <laughs> it feels like God doesn't know what he's doing. It feels like he doesn't know where he's taking this deal, right? But he does. Release, reach, wait, and then the last step is be caught. When Abraham releases Isaac, in the story of the husband and wife I just told you about, when they sacrificed their Isaacs, they were caught. The flyer's job is to release, reach, and wait, and then be caught. And the catcher's job, God's job, is to be at the right place at the right time. And as we reach out for him, what we discover is he has been reaching for us all along. And he will catch us every time. You will not fall to the ground. And when we understand that, then we're free. Nothing worries us. We have no fears. Nothing scares us because we know that we will be caught. Maybe not in the way we define caught, but caught in a way that God defines it, which is almost always better anyway. There's a man who goes to a church in Seattle who was an attorney for the state. And one of his Isaacs was his image. He's a very distinguished looking man, had this big head of distinguished gray hair and always wore a three-piece suit. Very decent and in order kind of a guy. And on the morning he was supposed to retire, he was praying and realized that in 40 years of his career, he had never once mentioned Jesus. So he said, Lord, I'm sorry. And then he had a thought, very strong thought, that he knew was God. And it said this, I want you to go to Husky Stadium on game day in your three-piece suit and stand at the entrance as people are coming in and wear a big sign that says, Jesus loves you. I'm sorry I haven't told you. Well, he knew that had to be God because one thing for sure, he'd never make that one up on his own. <laughs> and he said, but Lord, I'll look like a fool. Silence, no answer. So what did this image conscious, very proper guy do? He did it. And while he was standing there at Husky Stadium, he had a powerful experience of the Holy Spirit. He said it was physical. He felt like it was a warm blanket had been wrapped around him. And he had such an intense sense of being loved and so much joy that he started to cry right there in his three-piece suit and it had nothing to do with how the Huskies were playing. <laughs> Though yesterday, anyway, that totally changed his life. From there, he started going around the world to dig wells or build churches in the developing world, tell people about Jesus. He has all these pictures of him in his 70s with his shirt off, digging a well or building a house or preaching to hundreds of people. He's seen all kinds of miracles, folks cured of paralysis or diseases, and he comes home and tells his friends and neighbors about it, and they think he's kind of crazy and gone off the deep end or whatever, but he is having the time of his life. Now, as an image-conscious guy, this story kind of freaks me out, right? Like, I, I am so glad God told him to do it and not me, <laughs> yet. But it also kind of attracts me, because he surrendered his image, his Isaac, and God caught him, just not in the way he would have thought he would be caught. Because if you had told him earlier, you're going to stand outside Husky Stadium in a three-piece suit and with a religious sign around you, and you're going to love it, he'd have thought you were nuts. But that's what happened. He surrendered his Isaac, his image. He reached out and did something tangible, went to Husky Stadium. There was some waiting involved to see if it was all going to be okay, and then God caught him. And life got bigger, richer, deeper, better. He's got adventure, community, significance, joy, things that are not dependent on what the stock market does or his career or anything else. And that is freedom. That is the only real freedom there is. When you can have that kind of joy, no matter what's going on around you, then you're really free. So what's your Isaac? That thing you can't let go of. Is it time, money, control of other people, career? 
Maybe you feel like you're not surrendering your Isaac so much as it's being taken from you through some kind of tragedy. And I don't think God causes tragedies, but he sure does bring good things out of them if we surrender them to him and say, okay, God, I got laid off or I got cancer or whatever it is. Lord, what do you want to do here? Show me. And show me your goodness in the middle of it. I surrender. And you see, that's real surrender. Instead of praying, Lord, do this, Lord, do that, heal me, help me, fix me, bless me. Surrender is when we say, Lord, here's my Isaac. What do you want to do with it? And sometimes God will give that back to us as he did for Abraham, as he did in the story of the couple with their marriage. And sometimes it may never come back. The man outside Husky Stadium never got his decent and in order comfortable life back. But he doesn't care. He's got way more joy this way. Either way, can you surrender your Isaac, trusting that if you do somehow, some way, someday, God will make your life bigger, richer, deeper, better. Because you see, there is a catcher, and his name is Jesus, and he does not have sweaty hands. You will not drop.